So we are right now making our way through a series of sermons called Flipping Tables. Each week in this series, we're hearing this story that gets told in all four of the Gospels, the story of the moment when Jesus walks into the temple in Jerusalem and starts turning over the tables of the money changers. This week, I invite you to open your heart and your ears, listen for God's voice, as our friend Rebecca shares with us the story as we find it in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 19, 41 through 45. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes indeed. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you, you and your, hem you in on every side they will crush you to the ground you and your children within you and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of visitation from god then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there So this morning I'm going to do something that I hardly ever do. As a matter of fact, today I'm going to do something that I usually work really hard not to do. Today I'm going to retell a story that I've already told here at the Court Street United Methodist Church. Now I'm going to tell this story again today because it is one of the most important stories I have to tell. It's a story of a moment that changed my life. It's a story that I've been thinking about a lot these last few weeks. The story goes like this. Many, many years ago, I was a brand new student in the seminary at Duke University, an outstanding institution of basketball and higher learning. And as a brand new incoming student, there were all of these orientations and training sessions that I was required to attend. And out of all of those mandatory orientations and training sessions, the one that I was probably least excited about was the mandatory training session on racial sensitivity. Now, I had taken classes on race and racism in college, and I figured I knew pretty much everything I needed to know about racism and the history of race. And I really wasn't looking forward to sitting in an auditorium for 45 minutes while somebody tried to make me feel guilty for being born a white guy. But then I found out who the presenter for this training session was going to be. I found out that the presenter for this particular training session was the Reverend Dr. Peter Story. Now, the Reverend Dr. Peter Story shows up in a lot of my sermons. That's no accident. I got to take some classes from him while I was in seminary, and I came to have a, a deep respect and an admiration for him. At that point, I'd never met Peter Story. The only thing that I knew about him were some details and highlights from his life. I knew that he was from South Africa. I knew that he had been the president of the South African Methodist Church. I knew that for years he had been a leader in the movement to resist and end apartheid, the system of racial separation that oppressed and brutalized black South Africans for decades. I knew that he had worked alongside people like the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I knew that he had been a personal chaplain to Nelson Mandela during the years in which Nelson Mandela was imprisoned on Robben Island. I knew that Peter's story had been to the forefront of the struggle to resist racial injustice, and so I figured, well, at the very least, maybe we'll get some good stories out of this training session. 
Now, when the day arrived for the training session, I took my place in the auditorium and I looked around at all of those other brand new seminary students and I could see a lot of glazed over expressions and I realized that not many people seemed any more excited than I was to, to be there for this mandatory session. And then Peter's story arrived and he walked down to the front of the room and he took a spot at the front of the auditorium and then the Reverend Dr. Peter's story leaned into the microphone and said the very last thing that anybody in that room expected him to say. I am Peter's story, he said, and I am a racist. And suddenly all of those students lost that glazed over expression and we all as one leaned forward in our chairs to hear what Peter's story was going to say next. Now what he did next was he started explaining to us that racism is not what we think racism is. Racism doesn't look the way we think racism looks. He said, you think that racism looks like people walking around and saying the N-word and putting white sheets on their heads and burning crosses on people's lawns? He said, and sometimes racism looks like that, but most of the time it doesn't. Racism is a spiritual power of evil in this world, he said. Racism is a spiritual power of evil that infects our hearts and it infects our minds and it causes us to believe that we can know things about people, that we can know how intelligent someone is, that we can know how hardworking someone is, that we can know how moral, how violent, how good someone is just by looking at the color of their skin. And racism infects our hearts and our minds and it infects our relationships with people around us. It affects the way that we treat people and see people and evaluate people. Racism infects our hearts and our minds without even asking our permission. It's in the air that we breathe. It's in the policies of our governments. It's in, it's in the media that we consume every day. And he said, my goal today is not to make you feel guilty about your racism. My goal today is not to make you feel guilty about the color of your skin. You feeling guilty doesn't do anybody in this world a bit of good, he said. You feeling guilty doesn't bring any justice into this world. I am not here to make you feel guilty, he said. My work today is to help you see the racism that lives in our hearts, that lives all around us, because only when we see it can we begin to resist it. Now that moment, that lecture, that training session changed my life. It changed the way that I interact with people. It changed the way I approach conversations about race and racial justice. We can't resist what we choose not to see, Peter Story said. Only when we see the brokenness that is in the world all around us, only when we see the injustice that exists in this world and allow it to break and penetrate our hearts, only then can we begin to resist it. That's what Peter's story taught us that day. And that's what Jesus teaches us in this morning's gospel reading. Now, all this month we are hearing in worship the same story over and over again. Each week we are hearing this story that is told four times by all four gospel writers. The story of that moment when Jesus walks into the temple in Jerusalem and turns over the tables of the money changers. And we're reading the story so we can understand why Jesus protested and how Jesus protested so that maybe we can use some of those lessons in this season, this moment of protest that you and I are living in today. 
And one of the things that we've discovered as we hear this story over and over again is that each of the gospel writers finds a different lesson in this story. Now, two weeks ago, as we heard the story in Matthew's gospel, we discovered that in his protest, Jesus makes room for the voices of young people and the voices of vulnerable people. A good and godly protest will make room for the voices of young people and the voices of vulnerable people. And last week, as we heard this story in the Gospel of Mark, we discovered that Jesus is disruptive and even destructive as he tries to get people's attention and wake them up to what is happening all around them. We learned that a good and godly protest can be disruptive and sometimes even destructive in order that something new might come into this world. In Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, the Gospel writers spend a lot of time telling us about how Jesus protested. But in Luke's gospel, the the gospel writer is more interested in a different question. In Luke's gospel, the gospel writer is more interested in helping us understand why Jesus protested. In Luke's gospel, we find the story of a moment that happens just as Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem. In the gospel reading this morning, we hear that as Jesus is coming into the city with his disciples, as he is riding into the city on the back of a donkey, there comes a moment when he, he crosses over the top of a hill that was called the Mount of Olives. Now, From that place at the top of the Mount of Olives, Jesus would have had a, a sweeping view out over all of the city of Jerusalem. Still to this day, when tourists go to the city of Jerusalem, one thing that every tourist does is go to the Mount of Olives and go to the top of that hill and take pictures with this sweeping panoramic view that encompasses the whole of the city. Here's a a picture that I took in that, that same spot from the top of the Mount of Olives on a trip to Jerusalem a few years ago. That's not actually me in that picture. That's a friend of mine, a friend I made as I was on that particular journey. And as Jesus comes over the top of the hill, as he looks down over the city of Jerusalem and sees all of its people and sees everything that is happening there in the city, Jesus stops and then he begins to weep. There at the top of the Mount of Olives, the heart of Jesus is broken and he looks out over the city and he says, Oh, if only, if only you had recognized, if only you had seen the things that make for peace. What does Jesus mean when he says, the things that make for peace? The answer to that question is way back at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Way back at the very beginning of his Gospel, Luke tells us about a moment when the prophet, the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptizer, goes to the people of the city of Jerusalem and he warns them that a day of judgment, he warns them that a day of destruction is about to come upon them. And the people of the city of Jerusalem say to John the baptizer, well then, what can we do? How can we be saved? And so John the baptizer explains to them the things that make for peace. John says, you who are wealthy, you who have many things, share what you have with the poor. And you corrupt bureaucrats and you corrupt politicians, stop being so corrupt. And you who walk the streets of the city wearing armor with weapons at your hip and weapons in your hands, stop intimidating and abusing the people of the city, John says. End poverty. Make government work for the most vulnerable. Stop police brutality. These are the things that make for peace, John says. If you do these things, then maybe you can be saved. But it turns out that those things were too difficult for the people of the city of Jerusalem. 
They were not willing to do those things. And so they continued on as they had been. And when Jesus comes to the top of the Mount of Olives and looks out across the city, he sees a a city that is as impoverished and corrupt and violent as it ever has been. Jesus can see where all of this corruption and poverty and violence is going to end. And in that moment, as he looks out over the city, the heart of Jesus breaks and he begins to weep. And he says, if only, if only you had seen, if only you had recognized the things that make for peace. But you did not choose justice. And so you will not know peace, Jesus says. And then he rides his donkey down into the city. He walks into the temple and he starts turning over the tables of the money changers. Protest, good and godly protest, begins when God's people see what is happening all around us, when we see the corruption and injustice and brokenness of this world and we allow it to penetrate and break our own hearts. God is not calling us to feel guilty about our racism. God is not calling us to feel guilty about the color of our skin. What God is calling us to do is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to see what is happening in this world, and to weep because of it. And in order that we might see the injustice, in order that we might see what is happening all around us, I've invited our friend, a child of God, a daughter of Court Street United Methodist Church, I've invited Danielle Crowder to come back one more time And to tell us what she sees when she looks at our society, to tell us what she has experienced, just a little bit of what she has experienced as a black woman in America. Take a moment and listen to what Danielle has to say. There are many situations that make me uncomfortable in my daily life. Um, I've been followed around in stores Um, I try to be extra polite when I'm in the store. Um, I try not to walk too closely towards the entrance with items, even though they have items, you know, like at a clothing store, there's items towards the front of the store. I try not to pick up any items over there um, because I don't want people to think that I'm stealing. Um, I'm even afraid to stay in the store for too long. I'm very indecisive about Um, the clothes that I want to wear and the clothes that I want to pick out. And I just feel like if I'm there for too long, someone is going to suspect something. Um, But that's just something I feel like I have to be cautious about, especially when I have employees constantly like peering over to like look at me, see what I'm doing. Yeah, it's just situations like that um, where I feel like I have to prepare for the worst and be extra cautious with my life because I am black um, are definitely situations that are just really hard. Um, um, Having curly hair is a whole different experience um, in this world um, that makes me uncomfortable. I'm trying to learn to love my hair in a society that doesn't love my hair um, because I, I'm in a predominantly white area, I work at a predominantly white school, and so being the only teacher of color there, they're like, why is your hair like that? Why is your hair curly? Your hair is ugly. I haven't seen it like that before. Can I touch it? 
why does it look um, nappy? Why does it look greasy? How come your hair changes every day? Just stuff like that also makes me really uncomfortable. Um, but I also have to understand that they're just kids that don't understand yet, but I usually take those opportunities to teach them about my differences um, and the differences in other cu cultures and races um, in a very positive way. Um, definitely racist jokes have made me really uncomfortable this um, few months ago this past football season I was going to a football game with some of my roommate's friends and they're like you know oh we tell this joke you know whenever we meet new people and I was like oh it's a joke and um, they had it typed out on their phone and they let me read it and it said um, a black person and a Mexican person jumps off a plane who wins and it was society and I was just like Okay, so if I die, society wins just because I'm a black person. So that has definitely made me really uncomfortable. Um, I like going for walks, but especially what, because of what happened with um, Ahmaud Aubrey, um, I feel like I always have to carry around not only my driver's license, but my school ID to prove that I'm a college student and um, not doing anything wrong. Yeah, uh, I'm also in very afraid to get pulled over by the police, um, even if it's just for a simple traffic stop. Um, I never know what's gonna happen, especially just with everything going on right now. Um, my parents have talked to me about being very respectful and compliant with police, but um, in situations we've seen that that that's not even enough. Um, and so I try to run through my head when I'm driving, like if I were to get pulled over right now, like, okay, you gotta have my hands on the steering wheel, have to be very respectful, very quiet, try not to argue. And yeah, and I know that even in some situations that won't be enough. Um, my dad has been pulled over by police officers before and they have um, beaten him and hurt him even though he was very compliant with him. My father has been accused by the police of stealing a car before even though it was his car and they beat him and slammed him against um, the hood of the car. Um, and so from that experience he has always taught my brother um, the best things that we can do, but that might not even be enough. These protests are a response to the racism that Black people have faced for the last 400 plus years of living in America. It's not just about George Floyd, of course, that is what sparked it. Um, that is not what it only is about his death, although it's a very important factor. It's about um, all of police brutality against black and brown people. It's about all of um, the oppression, the systems, the systems of oppression that we face. It's, it's more than just um, one life lost. It's more than that. Um, it's against the discrimination and 
brutality that we face every single day. God is not calling us to feel guilty. God is calling us to see and to weep. To weep for George Floyd. To weep for Breonna Taylor. To weep for the things that people of color experience every day in America. Once we see and once our hearts are broken, then we will be ready to resist the racism that lives in our hearts and that exists all around us. My name is Jeremy Peters, and I am a racist. But by the grace of God and with the help of people like Danielle, I am working to resist the racism that exists within me and all around me. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us humble hearts and open eyes. God, we pray that you would help us to stop being defensive whenever people start talking about racial justice and racial injustice. God, we pray that you would give us, give us the courage and the strength to do what you have always called us to do, to see our sins, to confess our sins, to repent of our sins, and to build a more peaceful and more hopeful world. In Jesus we pray. Amen.